this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebounding Safety. This week, we are talking to Louise Hoskin in another episode of our mini-series talking all about diversity with the safety profession. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplur. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. So if you're new here, hit subscribe, hit follow, hit whatever, like, follow button, algorithm, thingamajiggy. It all helps us get into other people's ear holes and faces. Thank you very much for that. Um, today is another episode of the diversity mini-series, so I'm going to give a little caveat in the moment and talk a little bit about today's guest. But before I do that, a quick shout-out to Paradigm Human Performance. Paradigm Human Performance plus Shane Bush are human and organizational performance experts. So if you're looking for support on how to get your human and your organization to perform better, then Paradigm is a place for you. They work all around the world with some amazing, massive companies, um, helping them be better, helping them put worker safety as core of their DNA, helping them understand and, and utilize the expertise of the workforce, helping them deal with human error, helping them deal with organizational drift and drift into failure and all of that stuff. These guys are amazing. Trees is unbelievable. I love, I love that lady and her whole team are phenomenal. She's got a great team of consultants working with them um, and they partnered with Shane Bush over in America as well, um, who's is doing he's like an OG for hop anyway. So what a great partnership, what a great company. And we wouldn't partner with them if we didn't believe in what they were doing. We really think that more of you out there should be considering hop stuff for your organization. And if you're not quite sure, check out the learning organization webinar on their website as well. Email address, phone number, website, all in the description below. Check it. So today is another episode of the diversity mini series little caveat before we get into this this is a bit of a sensitive space i was very nervous about doing a mini series on on diversity but i'm very passionate about it as well um i think it's something we need a hell of a lot more of it's the right thing to do 100 but ultimately it's more than just the right thing to do it's this logical thing to do um if we've got the same kind of uh race and gender and age within the profession then we're always going to get the same ideas we need diversity to bring us cognitive diversity but if we want diversity of thought then we've got to bring in diverse people um so this is a no-brainer for me um but ultimately a very sensitive space where we're all learning how to talk again we're all learning how what words are right what words are wrong how do we define ourselves and it's 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 as is any kind of learning and changing journey, it's it's uncomfortable. Um, and so there are times that maybe I might slip up in a word I use. There are times that maybe my guests might slip up uh, in the words they use or the phrase they say. Uh, but ultimately, please remember, we're all doing this for the right reason. We, our, our purpose, our intent is positive. Um, so if there is something where you think we could improve, if there is something where you think um, we didn't do great, then please let us know 100%. 
but do it from a respectful uh, position. Do it from a position to help us grow um, because what we're doing here uh, is, is, a, is a positive intent and it's all about intent. So please, please, please um, feedback to us if you've got anything to say. Uh, we welcome it. We really do. This is not me telling you to not tell us where we where we have failed or where we need to improve or whatever. This is me telling you, do it, but let's do it respectfully. Let's help each other grow on this journey. Thank you very much for listening to me on that. I really, really appreciate it. Today, we're talking to Louise Hoskins. At the time of recording this, Louise is the VP. Uh, no, wait, the president-elect president of IOSH. Now she is the president of IOSH. She's here on behalf of herself, um, talking about her career. Um, so she also runs a company called uh, Hoskins Associates. So she'll introduce herself uh, very well uh, in a moment. Um, so thank you very much, Louise, for coming on. She's going to come on talk about her career, being a woman, and, um, and what that's kind of like. Um, so thank you very much. I'm going to stop waffling. Let's get into our conversation with Louise. Right, we're off, we're on. Louise, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. No, that's all right. Thank you very much for coming on. Do you want to give us an introduction to yourself and, and an overview of your career? And then we'll get into talking about your, yeah, your sure. experiences. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, um, me. Um, so, yeah, I'm Louise Hosking. I grew up in Cambridge um, and I guess I, I didn't kind of expect to go on to tertiary education. I came from quite a traditional kind of patriarchal household. And I think everybody kind of expected me to leave school at 16. And there weren't any huge aspirations for me, shall we say. Um, but I think growing up in Cambridge, you've kind of got all that kind of education around you. Um, I went through, I did science A-levels at college um, and I went to Nottingham Trent where I studied environmental health, um, which is an amazing course, an amazing route into health and safety, actually. And there's more and more um, health and safety professionals that are coming through with environmental health degrees. Um, so, and there's also an apprenticeship for that as well coming through now so um that was fantastic um I left there I actually went back to Cambridge where I worked as an environmental health officer um which was great it's a really proactive local authority so and, and I think it still is the case they weren't afraid to use their powers so um as a regulator I got quite used to going to court and prosecuting people so I've kind of got that background as well um I moved on from there and the reason why I kind of moved on is what well, I'm one of these people that I'm I'm not happy with just identifying a problem I've got to solve it and come up with a way to move things forward um and so I left the local authority because I didn't see myself long term as a regulator um, and went to work for the co-op. So um, I remember you talking about your job, James, being very kind of boots on the ground. And I think that's what that role was all about. And I did food safety, health and safety. We called it pollution back then. So I was still using all my environmental health skills at that time. Mm. Um, and one of the key aspects of what I was doing there, which I, I really enjoyed, was store refurbs. 
and um, new store developments, um, you know, just general sort of maintenance and repair. And I really got into that. And it was a, around the time when the CDM regulations were quite new. Um, so I got really involved with the store redevelopment stuff and really liked it and actually um, left the co-op to concentrate on that. So I moved into the construction sector um, and worked for a small consultancy doing CDM work. Um, after that, I got more into kind of commercial property um, and I was 31 when I became head of environmental health and safety at Savills which was a really big job to have but because I started you know I'm a first careerer um you know it 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 seems like it's really early to have a job like that but I was definitely ready for it um I was the first health and safety professional they'd ever had within the company um and I started off working in commercial property management but actually ended up working across the group so um got involved in rural estates work the estate agents which everybody knows um they've got overseas offices as well so so that was kind of the role that I always wanted um but I I I kind of had a thing you know this is we, we often talk about the corporate world and you know I felt that corporates certainly at that time so this is like I left there in 2005 um from a health and safety perspective they could honestly have done anything that they wanted but there was still this you know reluctance to see it as a as a real driver for success um and I I wanted to help people that really needed to be helped so mm. I set up my business which is predominantly to support smaller businesses yeah. um one of my first projects actually was working for the London Borough of Hillingdon where I um worked for the education team there and you know looked at all of their primary schools predominantly so I'm very much working now with smaller organisations. I've, I've worked with some schools, um, really broad cross-section. I have to say commercial management is still a real love of mine. I do like a big building <laughs> and getting into a good plant room. And at the top <laughs> of some, you know, I've, I've actually been to the top of some really impressive buildings um, around the UK. Um so yeah, I mean that's what I do now, and I I consider myself kind of part health and safety professional, part business owner, and there's a little bit left for me at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that's I, kind um, of a wrap up, really. <laughs> it's funny you said about you love a good plant room. When I worked for the NHS, there is nothing better than a hos a big hospital's plant room. Like, yeah. like the hum, you go in there and it's like, hmm. Yeah, and like, it's like, what does this bit do? I mean, I've always been really curious about things. And I think, you know, it's a good example of, you know, we need to be really curious in this job and constantly learning. And, you know, you, you can't know everything about everything. But if you meet a good, you know, the, the 
the the people that work in those environments want to talk about it so you can pick up and learn a lot from them i think yeah definitely definitely so we we're going to try and aim uh kind of focus our conversation around diversity in this conversation yeah because this is part of our like mini series when we we're trying to just have some kind of some, we've had a couple of, of people on that are kind of really just been open and honest about their stories. Um, one is a, one guy came on and talked about his experience of the gay man in America. And then Jesse Gomez, who you probably know, talks about um, being French and of an ethnic minority as well. And the mother and the challenges that she's gone through as well. And then the Crystal Danbury on as well, who's talked about being a woman in some really male dominated environments. So I'd be interested to kind of just kind of put the question, a really simple question out there, which really shouldn't be a question, but like, what is it like as a, cause I don't know, but as a woman going through like, was, was that in the, in the, in the local authority, was it local authority or HSC? Work yeah. Yeah. It? Local authority. Yeah. And was that really male dominated or was that quite diverse or. Re- Do you know, that's a really good question because environmental health is really different. Mm. So um, when I was at uni and um, yeah, I'm getting on a bit now, James. I'm definitely not an Irish <laughs> leader. Um, but um, I, so I went to uni in 1988 and I was on a three-year full-time course. And the third year, when I was in the first year, was 75% male, 25% female. The second year was 50-50 and okay. my year was split. So it was it was like this point in time when environmental health switched um, and actually in environmental health now it is predominantly women and nice. they're much younger cross section as well. Oh, that's interesting. Which is really interesting. That is interesting. And that's why I, I just, I didn't know that, but I just, I just wondered, is it any different there or is it the same? Because we come across so many industries that are, you know, un- unless it's like the care industry, nearly every other industry is yeah. just kind of so male dominated, isn't it? Um, yeah. And, and but the really interesting thing was when I worked at the local authority and you know it, I could probably do a whole one of your shows on my great stories of being an environmental health officer I bet, yeah. um, <laughs> but um so my role was food safety and health and safety so I predominantly did the health and safety in food premises yeah. um and there were um yeah so but I, I still investigated I remember investigating an incident where um somebody in a large commercial kitchen actually tipped an entire massive pot of boiling water down the back of somebody else so so you know I was I was kind of thrust into it at a really early age um but it was you know there was definitely at that time and certainly working for Cambridge and because I was new I I didn't ever feel that my gender at that point was an issue um although saying that health and safe there was a health and safety team within the department that looked after health and safety in the council and pure health and safety and that health and safety team was two old boys who sat in an office on their own (laughs) 
What about your uh, youth? Was that was that because you you you've said a few times you know you were in roles that you were maybe potentially perceived as being a bit young for that because you're a first mm. career or whereas the majority of safety professionals are, I think it'd be fair to say second career. I also think that's something I could relate to. Like it wasn't really a. I kind of say I'm a bit of a first careerer because I didn't really have a career before, but I just had a shitload of jobs. Like I started in safety at about 20, 20, 2021, I think it was Mm. not the year 2021, obviously, but Mm. 20 to 21 ish around that period. So for me, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a first career. Um, And I've started at the same age. Okay. So for me, I've always thought that, youth was a big thing like yeah. there's, a, there's an assumption that if you're young you haven't got a clue um, so, so I have this theory that is completely my theory <laughs> um, <laughs> which is you know between the age of 20 and 30 um the issues that I faced were in terms of bias and we all have bias were around my age yeah once I sort of reached my mid thirties, it became a gender issue. So, oh, so I have this theory that gender becomes um, more of a predominant bias that we see the further up the ladder that you go, the further on with your career that you become. Um, so, so for me, and, uh, although saying that, I I worked for incredible people in my 20s who gave me a really strong foundation, which I think is so important in this profession, because it means that people can throw things at me now and I've got a really strong resilience, mm. um, which I think those early, you know, my early career gave me. Um, but I think age was definitely a factor for me when I was in my 20s, yeah. um, more so than my gender. Why do you think I, did, that... I didn't think about my gender as being an issue in my 20s. No, that's good. In a way, yeah, that's good. Why do you think, what's the reasoning behind your theory? Why do you think the gender starts to rear its head in the more senior I... or the more older that you get? So I, I, I actually think what happens is that, you know, we predominantly in your early career, you're probably not going to be in a pure leadership role so I think it starts to become an issue as you know for women who are moving into leadership roles and I think you know thankfully this is changing but I think in the past um you know management styles of control coercion you know commanding control has has proven to be a really successful way to get on in business Mm. and so if people can see that you know command control works that becomes the predominant style Mm. and I don't think that fits with people that have more feminine traits so this is I mean you were saying one of your guests was a you've had you know gay man coming on and talking about you know and so you know and again everybody's different but I think though it's those feminine traits they don't fit with command control coercion yeah you know 
so we tend to you know certainly within my career I've never been able to use command and control so I've had to learn to take you know I take people with me when I'm I'm doing things um but I think the further up the ladder you get that command and control is still I feel the predominant um management style we haven't worked it all through yet um and I think the further up the tree that you get you know the fewer jobs there are there's more competition and I think people with feminine traits find that competitive environment extremely challenging it's really hard you know we 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 have all of these emotions people with feminine traits have lots of emotion lots of empathy and it's easier to avoid those difficult situations so we we lose people yeah that's really interesting you say that because i definitely have never been able to to command and control like I've, it's even as a younger kind of safety professional I've never it's never sat right with me I've never been really comfortable with it and I think that's why you know this movement to new view and all that just works really well with me because it's it removes work from that and, that, and that's why it just works for me so well because it speaks to my inner being and when I look back onto what you just said like feminine traits for me like I was raised by women, like literally, you know, kind of like Mowgli was raised by wolves. I was raised, raised by women. Um, my grandma was my dad and my mum was obviously my mum. And, and it definitely those feminine traits speak stronger in me than, than the male traits. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I'm no psychologist or anything like that. But, you know, when, when you learn a little bit of psychology as we do in our role, you can start to pick out some of this stuff. And I think what you've just said there, I think that makes a lot of sense, a lot of sense. And that speaks to me, definitely, definitely. I, I think um, an, another conversation that I've had with you, James, that I really remembered, we were talking about our why, why we mm. do things. Um, and I, um, I grew up in a command and control household. Okay. with you know big penalties if yeah. you didn't comply with that command and control and and um you I remember you saying to me that your why was around fairness yeah. and that's my why as well is I just hate to see unfairness yeah. um and that for me has always been my bigger driver and I think because I've stood up to command and control from a very early age I, you know, I've just kept going, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've, I've just kept going mm. and, you know, hopefully I can, you know, my big hope for the future is that I can make it better for the next generation behind me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That the fairness thing is, is just, I, it took me a long time to probably realize that, but I think empathy and, and fairness for me and, and respect for people, they, they speak heavily to me, like really oh. deeply. They speak to me. I've never, I've ne- it's never sat with me like anything that I might personally deem as unfair and fairness is probably a relative term. But I, when I was a kid, um, <laughs> this is such a pathetic story, but when I was a kid, I played football in uh, this little, just a lot. I think it was like a lunchtime thing. I don't know. And our ref was the, uh, the head teacher. And um, 
And anyway, we had this uh, little football tournament or whatever it was, and we did this uh, like prize draw in assembly, right? And he said, oh, I've made up a new award because I was, I was so impressed by this this person uh, during, the, um, during the football that I wanted to give them a, an award. And we were all a bit like, oh, what's this? Mm-hmm. I just realized it's gone really dark in here. I'll sort that out in a minute. And, um, and anyway, he went, this is for the fairest player. And then he called my name and I was like, oh, you're joking. I'm going to get bullied for this for years. <laughs> and I had a chocolate bar and that was it. But he was like, every time the ball went out, if he went, you know, he was trying mm. to teach us fair play. It's what he was trying to teach us. So he turned around and would say, Who, who's, whose ball is it? And I would always go, it's their ball or it's my ball. And that, and that was, no one taught me that. I just kind of did it. Like it was always so, it kind of, the why stuff speaks to me a lot because it's, I think when you really get down to it and you look at it, mm-hmm. it's those little things that no one taught you, but you just did. And it just worked because it's you in a nutshell. Yeah. So for me that, you know, that whole fairness thing and the other thing, I mean, people, it's amazing how um, people, if we're talking about bias, we can talk about all the biases here. So, you know, as soon as I said, Oh, you know, I grew up in Cambridge and people kind of, it's, it's amazing how that kind of has an instant, gives people an instant perception as well. Um, but so a, a fact about Cambridge that lots of people know, don't know is that it's actually the most divided city in the UK between the haves and the have-nots. And when you work for a local authority, which is why I said I could do an entire story, show probably about being an EHA, um, is I saw firsthand some of that poverty and some of that unfairness and so I guess that's why I loved my time working in the corporate world um but that wasn't where I you know I felt like I could do more by working in like you know for companies and organizations that needed mm. it more and again sometimes you have you know you then have a perception because you don't have a big shiny corporate job and so mm. you know yeah I think I think in health and safety we all need to be a little bit less judgmental perhaps sometimes <laughs> yeah I think and that class thing is really interesting like you're touching on the the kind of upper middle and lower classes yeah it's social bias isn't it, it? Is. And it and that I genuinely think a lot of that especially in the UK or especially in England is is deep rooted like I'm mm-hmm. working class straight up working class background my, to the point my teacher even said to me you you'll, you'll you'll never get more than a warehouse job or, or something like that yeah. and not that there's yeah, anything wrong with that and it, it sticks with you for a long time yeah, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with working in a warehouse you can get a shitload of money working in a warehouse but like it's um and i, and I, I remember thinking like wow well, okay fair enough and um I wanted to either work in theatre or be a journalist, and she kind of laughed at me. You know, I was full on working class, and I was just never meant to be anything more than than what society deemed me to be. And mm-hmm. I've I've experienced a lot of bias from that point of view, one hundred percent, and um, and and a lot of bias from the youth point of view. And never in my entire life, up until my wife was pregnant, have I experienced sexism. 
And I experienced sexism when I was an expecting father. I genuinely think that the only time a male will really experience sexism, unless they're maybe in a working in a, in a female dominant environment, I'll probably, I couldn't comment for that, but is, is when you're an expecting father, you get, just assume that you don't know what you're talking about, that you're only there because your wife told you to be there, that you don't really care because that's what the stereotype of a dad is apparently. And oh my God, I remember the first wow. the first or the second meeting I had, I think I said this to Crystal as well, when we because we ended up talking quite heavily around maternity and, per, and paternity. And I remember saying, coming out of a meeting at a local hospital, um, it was just before COVID because that was that was it. It was one of the first ones because COVID stopped me from going to any others. And I'd always said when Sherry fell pregnant, I was like, I'm going to be at all of them. Like, I'm I'm uber involved. Like I want to be at there. I want to see. Uh, I want to want to know you're okay. I want to know my baby's okay. I want to help. I want to be involved. Like it was really important to me to be involved. No one's ever told me to be like that. Like and I just wanted to be involved. And um, and and being a good dad is really important to me like and, and it is to all dads I get that but like it was just so important to me and I sat in this meeting and the woman the stuff she was saying was just like you know oh we, we better hurry up so daddy can get back to work and I'm just like okay all right. wow yeah so, that's so a like, good comparison <laughs> you're, you're saying that like I don't want to be here like oh we better hurry mm. up so daddy wants beer no you take your fucking time love because I'm 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 here because mm. I want to be here or I can't she said something else around like oh do you, do you know what that means daddy and I'm just like if you call me daddy one more time I swear I'm gonna you know this is so when I because I do talk about this subject a lot <laughs> which you know um and I always balance this with the fact that you know when we talk about gender equality it's not just a women's issue it's an organizational issue and um we need to have balance we need to have balance of thought but also we need to give we need to give men back that balance too so so we know that when men choose to take you know we've had shared parental leave in this country for a long time and we know that when men take shared parental leave they face the same discrimination that women do and actually when we um you know I'm a big advocate for part-time flexible working and always have been it shouldn't be part of a job but actually why shouldn't that be open to men too so you know in achieving this I love talking a gender balance I love to you know I'd much rather I think that's a good phrase to put to it it works in both ways we know that you know the the suicide rates for for young men is too high because they take all of this on board they feel that they've got to be the breadwinner they've got to be the one who's who's in charge taking responsibility all the time Mm. and actually if we can achieve that balance we're going to create more harmony for men and for women for people with masculine traits and feminine traits and and that in a nutshell is why i think just having these conversations is so important 
like you know my, my podcast or any safety podcast is a tiny drop in the ocean compared to some of the massive podcasts out there but the more and more professions that have this conversation around you know yes we, we're talking about your experiences as a woman and yes when we talked to sam we were talking about his experiences as a gay man and and I think the telling the stories of those experiences is good because it creates empathy for people that haven't mm-hmm. experienced it and they're powerful, but we're not sitting here saying, all oh, you know, all safety professionals should be women or, or all, all of them should be, you know, transgender or something like that. What we're saying is it's, it's all of the above because like, mm. to, to your point, you mentioned there like cognitive diversity or diversity of thought that, is innovation in a nutshell you ain't going to get nothing unless mm-hmm. you unless you really start to diversify your your pool of ideas and the only way you do that is by having diverse people in so for yeah me, and i i i think the other i think the other kind of issue that health and safety has has kind of suffered from um in the past as well is you know people thinking right you know this is what it says, this is what's written down in the law, so this is what you have to do. And, you know, there has been, you know, it's the way that organisations and businesses look at this. You know, they still want to be able to tick a box and fix health and safety. They don't see it as a journey and part of their DNA. Mm. Um, And so when we've got those kind of attitudes to this is right and that's wrong, it translates into I'm right, you're wrong. Um, And I desperately feel we need to learn to disagree with each other better. Mm. Because if we can hear somebody else speak and allow them space to speak and respect a different perspective we're going to make better health and safety decisions and if we make better health and safety decisions guess what we're going to save more lives Mm. so you know I think it has come from you know it's definitely come from you know health and safety has grown up from construction heavy heavy industry that kind of thing which is why it's been predominantly a male-led profession but we're now realizing that we can't create a health and safety perspective within an organization that's part of its dna if we are using command control and coercion it just doesn't work and as we start to talk more about health we are going to see that you know health psychology you know ergonomics that kind of thing is going to attract more women and I but I do think we've kind of got this clash of worlds going on at the moment where women are trying to push themselves forward and they are hitting you know those barriers well i I think that just uh we we operate and i think to your point about the tick in the box we operate in a world where it's everything seems to be one or the other like Mm. like is is it are are we are we a technical profession or are we a kind of soft skills profession you know are we psychologists or are we engineers no we're all of the above Mm -hmm. and we need all of the above like i think i made it i made a video about this a while ago but like there's an assumption that and, and i bang my head against this brick wall so many times with with so many big organizations within safety and that you know so we're acknowledging these so-called soft skills but we're acknowledging them 
as a one, in my opinion, lip service, because we're so scared that they're going to overpower the technical skills and that it's that it's it's soft skills in spite of the sets, uh, the, the, the technical skills or uh, overpowering the technical skills. Like, no, no, no. It's I still want somebody who who is like uber engineering focus like if i'm going to build myself a team tomorrow i want someone who is like fine detail you'll need me on your commercial management side <laughs> <laughs> but like i want an engineer i want someone mm. that loves the technical details i want somebody especially in big safety you know work i want stuff like that but i also want someone who is really understanding of the softer skills that knows how to build relationships that understands how to be empathetic and build, you know, connections with people so that they can influence so that we can take the, the knowledge from the engineer. We can design out as much as possible, but then we have to hit that, that influencing safety person or whatever we want to call them, the softer skilled person and let them work their magic. It's, it's both in tandem. It's not, it's it not one against each other. I, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about health and safety leadership and i think i think people need to understand the difference between what makes a leader and what makes a manager i think we have lots of good health and safety managers who want to tell you how to follow the system whereas for me leadership is using your people and fitting you know is is creating an environment where your people can flourish so we we become facilitators I mean, I've, I, I'm not a particularly good hazard spotter anymore because, you know, I see my role as going into businesses to create space so that they can make the decisions for their organisation exactly. that is that are the best decisions for their organization and if we get it right it filters all the way down so everybody's making risk-based choices for themselves and for the person that's working next to them mm. and and that's why those skills are so important but you're right you you've still got to know your technical stuff you know I I still you know I know my technical health and safety I know my legislation you know and you know experience is still really important um but I I to go back to the age thing I've always sat and I've never been able to command because it's not just that you know I'm a woman I'm quite a girly girl as well and so you have to sit with people and figure it out and they come and you you work together on your problems, mm. you know? I mean, when I was, I was at the co-op when I was, I had that job from about 23, I think. And it was just after the six pack had come out. So older viewers will remember the six pack, but it was the um, Pure, Lola, manual handling regs, PPE regs. They literally descended and we had to do risk assessments. And at 23, I was given the project to do the manual handling risk assessments for the whole of the non-food division. And they kind of trusted me to get on with it. And, and I would go around the stores and figure out how they did stuff with the people that worked there. And they gave me the solutions. And I guess it's kind of gone with me throughout my career. But I still, I think we need to work with with the profession to say you know you don't have to have all it's okay not to have all of the answers and to use those kind of skills mm -hmm. and that is definitely a more feminine trait than a masculine trait mm. 
I suppose come back to your your other point where you mentioned about like the kind of male suicide rate. I think they were just pondering a thought thought as you as you kind of said that in the males are kind of as you can we've always got to be the ones with the answers so so when you put all this context together you know, let, let's kind of let's kind of safety this a little bit let's do a sort yeah. of like investigate That's investigation kind of around <laughs> it i mean if you look at it let, let's try and so what's the problem the problem is there's a command and the command and control approach where safety professionals are really like we must have be have all the answers and i have to have all these i have to tell you what to do i have to be in yeah. control Exactly. And we're trying to tell this new, these old safety professional, not old in age, just old and maybe approach or whatever, or maybe not old in approach. Oh God, this is a minefield. Anyway, <laughs> but we're trying to tell you, no, 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 it's not about having the answers. It's about understanding and facilitating the answers that the shop floor has. Okay. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, when you look at the context of this, it's like, okay, majority of safety professionals are male and the majority of males, society tells them they must be the breadwinner they must have all the answers they must protect people they must be the man i remember being a the kid i remember being a kid and my mum saying you're the man of the house james you're i mean my my i grew up with a father that was so like you know i have to have all of the answers i know the answers to you know and it's these people that know every single regulation inside out mm. they know you know they've been there they've done it and they have to exude that but actually, when you exude that in a workplace, it intimidates other people mm. and it takes away innovation. It takes away creativity. And it's a little, it's quite soul destroying. Mm. And well, I think it, it, it's kind of fascinating that we've gone down this point, I think, because if you, there's a, there's a great documentary on Netflix and Netflix Explained series where they're talking about the gender pay gap. And actually, one of the couple of the couple of things that came out of that is that they said it's not a gender pay gap; it's a parental pay gap. And actually, societies, businesses, organisations, governments, etc., need to make it one socially acceptable for the man to not go back to work and be the dad to stay at home. Hundred percent. And facilitate that through the the leave that they get paid. Yeah. And um, this is very similar problem. Like we need to make it societally acceptable for the men to not have the answers, for men to be a bit more feminine traits, so to speak, you know, but then also make it acceptable that you don't have those feminine traits and that that's a good thing as well. So in a way, we just need to accept that it's all of the above and that actually this is really chaotic, but that's pretty good. But you know something else, James, something else that I've often said as well, that gender bias is not gender specific. So you can have situations where other women in leadership mm. positions will favour a male in a, in, a, in a leadership role. You know, I've I've had I've had comparisons being made to me by people that I consider to be peers, but they think, oh, well, they're less experienced than you, you know, and and people make assumptions about me because I'm a woman, because I'm quite, you know, I've, I've got quite a feminine voice, you know, I 
command just doesn't exist <laughs> in my vocabulary. Mm. So, so you know, I think some of the issues that I've faced um, have been because of that. They assume, people assume. Yeah. No, they do. We judge without context a lot of the time. And that's not just men. It's men and women yeah. make yeah. those assumptions very quickly. Do you think I'm going to completely change the direction of this conversation? <laughs> just that when you were talking about biases... And it reminded me of something. Remember when we were building all the those temporary hospitals for COVID, right? Yeah. And can you remember China building one in like one day or something? Mm-hmm. Like that? Loads of videos came out of like how quick they were whizzing around. So all these trucks and it was just, it just looked chaotic. And I remember all of the comments from, you know, UK based safety professionals and, and not just safety professionals, you know, UK operations managers and directors of this and directors of that all making assumptions that that site wasn't safe and that Mm. we're better than them at safety do you think we have a bias in the uk as being better than everyone else at safety or or maybe oh i think oh now you're talking about cultural biases which is fascinating stuff as well is you know i i mean let's health and safety is a great uk export there's no question about it um but i genuinely believe that we can all learn from each other and we can um you know we can grow and develop via the things that we learn from other places and if we we have to stop we have to stop being judgmental about each other mm. um you know i i um Sri Lanka is I I went on holiday and met some health and safety professionals in Sri Lanka because that's what I did. Sad person. (laughs) And um and I've stayed in contact with 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 them ever since. And that's a fascinating country because um they haven't banned asbestos. Um, you know, there's very few regulations in in place um in Sri Lanka. Um, they lose a lot of men to suicide in Sri Lanka. Um, they lose a lot of men um, from chemicals that they're using on the fields in Sri Lanka. Mm. Um, but these guys are starting to, they're starting to develop their health and safety framework. And it's very much being led by, you know, health and safety professionals that might be working for global corporates and they're going back into the country to you know everybody wants to improve their own country and I genuinely believe we can learn a lot from them as they're developing their system so we need to learn from each other and we cannot you know we're much more aware of our global world now than we ever have been and I think we need to grasp that as an opportunity um, and we need to stop we need to stop judging each other, don't we? Definitely. That's what this is all about. We need to stop making assumptions that we know best and that, that someone in front of us is just judging without context. And and the reason I asked this question is because it just some of the stuff we were saying was just so fascinating. And it was reminding me of a conversation I had of one of the members of Project Miletium, actually. And he, was, and he said a, a fascinating question, just on a one-to-one phone call with him, um, where do you think the next like big uh, kind of innovation of safety is going to come from around the world? Where's the next big thing of safety going to come from? Who's going to change the safety world? And, and I was just like, 
who's going to change the safety world? Like so much good stuff coming out of Australia right now. Yeah, there is. So I'm probably like maybe Australia. And he was like, no, I think it's going to be like somewhere like India or something like that. And I was yeah. like, okay. And like elaborate on it. And he, and he yeah. kind of went but on. That's, and was, that's, I'm, I, yeah. I mean, that's why these countries um, can take our learning and develop it in a modern environment and they could easily start to teach but we've all got to be open to learn and listen from that too and I think it also if you look at it like what what I think is fascinating about what Peter said was it's kind of the different environment that they they have in that maybe their priorities are different like if you look at like one you know India, Asia as a collective, I suppose, and and then the, you know the Emirates as well. They're all got the emerging technologies all coming from there. So one, they're embedded with technology, right? And as as nations, they are. If you look at like the Emirates, for example, United Emirates, they are just one hundred percent up the wazoo. We are turning our countries from deserts to you know, buzzing uh-huh. cities, and I don't care how we do it, get it done. So as a uh-huh. safety professional, like, okay, I don't care how we do it, got to get it done, but we don't want to kill anyone. So like, I want to hear how did they manage that? So when they uh-huh. come over to us, we, we just look at them maybe as a bias and go, you don't know what you're doing. We're the best at safety. But actually, damn, they've you try doing safety in that environment. And, and I just I know, I you can't, you can't rest on your laurels, can you? I mean, you know, I think we were probably one of the first, you know, well, the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Way older than you, probably, James. Just a bit. Is, you know, it brought into being risk based, a risk based approach. And so we created that risk based approach in the UK, but other people are going to take that risk-based approach and I think turn it on its head Mm. because if you can combine a risk-based approach with modern leadership skills you won't need legislation Mm. oh that's now that's an idea isn't it Mm. you know you you won't need rules you're talking my language now like I was in a fascinating conversation the other day where we were talking around um like violations of, of rules and, and, and punishing those rules and so on and so forth and how it doesn't really achieve what we want it to achieve right mm-hmm. and they said well this one guy said well, that doesn't sit comfortably for me what about like speeding you know we break the speed and, and then we get our points on a license we lose our car whatever and and i get what he was saying 100 get what he said and I, and I kind of agree with him but my my, my question is does it work no, it doesn't work because how long have we had speed limits in place and how long have we been challenged and dealing with this issue? No matter how many cameras, how many smart highways, no matter how many, how many control measures we put in place, no matter how many like speed awareness courses, which FYI, I've been on one or maybe two of them and, uh, and they're really good. They're really good. Um, you learn loads of stuff. I thought yeah. I was just going to get my, my wrist slapped and get told off like a copper for like a half an hour to an hour, but actually it just educated me, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, but it's not solved the problem. So actually 
this is where I think diversity comes in 100% because you're going to get someone from China who built that, that hospital in 24 hours. And we like, Oh, what rules did you have in place? What policies, what procedures? And they mm-hmm. went, we didn't, we didn't. Yeah. Have yeah. We just got it done. Oh, you must have killed loads of people. No, we didn't kill anybody. Oh, but when we built the Olympic Village and did Yeah, no, I I honestly believe this could happen. I do believe this can happen with the right approach. You've still got to understand the concepts of modern risk management, but and and you've got to understand business. I like hanging out with podcasters that talk about disruptive MBAs as well, and they're having the same conversations around this. So so those organisations that want to look at it differently and really go for it are going to thrive in that arena. But you're still going to have a lot of companies and a lot of smaller companies that need to have a, a legislative framework to move forward so so I think I mean one of the things that I've written about in the past is I think there's going to be I I started off the conversation talking about Cambridge being this socially divided city Um, and I think something that could come out of the pandemic is that we have a social divide in health and safety as well so at the one end you've got um organizations that have grasped this technological revolution that we're going through who are able to use the data and the learning and you know how we've all you know applied ourselves in at this time and then at the other end of the scale you've got businesses that are just hanging on by their fingertips cutting costs left right and center are going to be left behind Mm. and so you know, how are we going to measure that? Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Isn't it funny that you have a conversation about diversity and this is where we brought us to? And does that not, <laughs> does that not turn a nutshell, like the power of, of talking about this stuff? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the reason it's always excited me because... I just I love building teams um, and I love being in groups of people that are massively different and you know one of the things I did um, before lockdown actually um, I I like hanging out with psychologists <laughs> and one of my psychology um, friends who who's a professor at um, University of London actually created they've they've been doing this thing called a warm data lab and so they pose a question and then put people into groups and and literally you can have a discussion in a group and you move from group to group depending on whether you like that conversation or not and you can actually solve problems in that way Mm. um and come up with some really interesting stuff um so it kind of all comes back to how we're communicating with each other i guess yeah well it's funny just as you were talking i was thinking in my head like what we're talking about here is actually not diversity it's inclusion because Mm. it it comes back to that that point yeah you can buy diversity but you can't buy inclusion and i know And, and we could we could attract as many, you know, ethnic minorities, as many uh, ethnicities, as many genders, as many sexual preferences, whatever. You know, young people, old people, first of career, second of career. But it doesn't matter unless we 
get rid of those biases. We stop assuming that we know, but we accept them and we create some psychological safety mm-hmm. within our own profession. Because at the moment we don't have that. We're very clicky. So, we're very judgmental. You know something, psychological safety within an organisation, I believe is, you know, and I'm saying this from the perspective of being a business owner as well as a health and safety professional, is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle because you want your people to put their hand up and say, this isn't working for me. And to create an environment where people can say that, it's not as easy as you think. (laughs) Because as business owners, you know, I'm not just thinking, I've got to think of so many things. Have I done my VAT return? Am I sticking to HR rules? You know, we've had all the issues around COVID. Can my team um, cover their childcare? You know, there are running a business is is hard it's not easy and so resorting to this command and control can feel like it's the easiest route well, to go it's, down. it's the safest isn't it and i think this is the irony of it as i had this bit of a realization the other day in that a lack of psychological safety provides psychological safety for the person that doesn't want psychological safety because actually as a business leader psychological safety is really scary like you're you're saying i want you to tell me everything i want you to be honest with me and that could potentially mean you turning around and going james i and hate it when you do this and this is really incompetent and we could do it this way which is this way be so much better and for for me that's really scary and uncomfortable if i'm running Mm. a company so actually ironically i feel psychologically safe because we don't have psychological safety yeah yeah and and um you know if we think about command and control command and control and coercers being very successful in the past um you know they're going to continue with that style and actually now we're saying to them you know you've got a workforce that's stressed out burnt out everything else um to achieve psychological safety you have to evaluate how you feel about this first Mm. and it is hard it's really hard every time i say to one of my team how are you doing is there anything that i can do this differently I'm scared about what they're going to come back with, you know, but you, it's, it's important. It's, and I think you, another word that I remember you talking about um, when we've been talking about before is, is about trust. Yeah. Too. That's huge, huge too. Massive, massive. Like, I don't understand why you would employ someone and then not trust them. It doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Cause if you don't trust them, you shouldn't have bloody employed them. So well, that can be quite difficult because there's not enough pe- good, you know, sometimes you think there's not enough people to go around either. So so then I think that's where we start to, there's not enough people to go around. And then also we, we, we end up, it's really difficult place where we're so scared sometimes to have the conversation to say, I, I don't think you're right for this company and I don't think we're right mm-hmm. for you. And actually that's a, that's a good thing because mm-hmm. it means there's a company out there that's right for you and it means there's someone out there that's right for me. Like we make it this thing that like we don't want you because you're incompetent. Actually, sometimes mm-hmm. you're just not right for our culture. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's that's the, one of the issues with diversity is that sometimes it just doesn't work. I think, mm-hmm. and that's a good 
thing. Like some people cannot stand my podcast. I guarantee it. There is somebody out there. One day they'll message me and they'll say, FYI, James, I just wanted to say, I think your work is crap. Right. <laughs> and that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it means, frankly, if the world was full of Jameses, I'd still argue with myself. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it would be, it, it, we, we need loads of different people talking in different mm. ways. And it sounds scary. It sounds chaotic, but I think it's a really good thing. But it's hard. So- it is and I mean one of the things that I said to you um before we came on was yeah I can talk about I can talk till the cows come home at some of the hideous experiences that I've had and you know hearing the generations coming through and experiencing the same things it just gets me right in here um but I do believe the way that we're going to overcome this is to not think not look back but to look forward mm. um which is why have you heard of my one wish that i have got have you heard of one wish so no. so one wish stands for women and inclusion in safety and health and it's something that um kind of got created <laughs> last year and we we had a big congress at international women's day oh, yeah, and yeah. um yeah so we pulled together um women and leaders so it's not just women because that can create a silo in its own mm-hmm. um who are, are really you know want to move forward in this arena for health and safety so we've got um organizations from literally around the world involved in this and the congress started in australia and finished in australia in america so we followed the time zones through um hugely successful but we we had a theme and that was about looking forward. It was about creating um, because women are afraid to step up and be seen to be kind of out there. And and I can really relate to that. I you know, I I why? Why are women why are women afraid? I think what it is is I, because to, to move forward you've got to be visible, especially now. Um and and you feel like you're being pushy or, right. you know, you feel like you're drawing attention to yourself. It's that um, kind of old analogy of a, a, a man, good leader, uh, a, a woman, she's bossy. Like that, those kind of <laughs> memes that you see on social media. Yeah. So, right. so, you know, I have, I have always felt like I've got to be better than the next best man to do yeah. the things that I do. Okay. Um, and the minute I, if, if I've, you know, I've had people say to me, you're just all over the place, you know, and actually I'm thinking, mm, am I really? But that kind of stink sticks. And we have this kind of likability factor as women is that really strong male leaders can be unlikable, but still successful. And I think that's much harder for women. And so that whole visibility piece is really challenging for us. So as part of what we're doing in One Wish, as part of what we did in that Congress was basic, and part of what I do too is, and it terrifies me too, by the way, is, you know, it's okay to be visible. It's okay to be out there. It's okay to be having a conversation. It's okay to be somebody that other people see on LinkedIn or in social media. 
um, or all over the place. So, so that visibility is really key. Um, and just giving women the confidence to step forward by surrounding them with other people, strong people that share this view that we're kind of discussing right now. Um, because the reason why you know, and I've seen this an awful lot, is you can't underestimate sponsorship. So what we need to do is we need to give um, women and other underrepresented groups that support from the highest levels. So we need to get women in women and underrepresented groups into the highest um, posts around the world. Mm. Um, and so that that sponsorship's created. Yeah. And it's massively important because, I mean, people, we, we look at things through a male lens, you know. Um, at the Congress, um, we had a, um, the chief executive, um, Karen James, spoke from ERM, and they've done some research. And, I mean, they... they they're a big global organization that does a lot of research around health and safety. Um, and they, because we asked her to speak at this Congress, she kind of went back and looked at some statistics and they um, carried out research in 270 odd um, of the largest organizations in the world. And they found that 15% of them had women health and safety leaders at a high as a high you know within a, a significant role in those organizations and that was compared to 29 percent in the same organizations at the same level so what that means is that we're not promoting um women into health and safety leadership positions in the same way that we would other leadership oh right i'm with you so in finance or hr or something exactly. like that or operations there is 29 but in safety it's 15 yeah. oh okay I'm with so, you. so so then if you take that figure and you put that into a predominantly male environment like mining construction offshore yeah. We're, we're looking at health and safety through a male lens. We're not looking at health and safety in the way that it affects our entire workforce. We're going to miss stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's such a, a good example of it in, um, I talk about this book all the time, but Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. I don't know if you've read it. Yeah. Such and the fish tank. Example I hate rules. I'm a real rebel. <laughs> yeah. Could, can you remember the fish tank example? The, the, the research that you talked about in there, there's a, a little story it talks about in the book where they got a load of uh, American people to verbally describe the fish tank, a load of, I think it was Japanese people to verbally describe the fish tank. And the, the American people described, I might've got this the wrong way around, but they described the fish. Um, so the, the, the fish tank with a big fish in it, there was four fish, one was red, one was blue, right? The, the Japanese people, and again, this could be the other way around, but the Japanese people, they didn't even 
barely mention the fish they described the context so they were like the sand was like a yellowy color there was lovely red purple green plants and stuff like that the 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 water was really clear and it showed that the difference in cultures means you you physically see things differently and now you take that and apply that to safety at the moment. 75% last I saw were over were, were over 50 or something like that, or mm-hmm. over 45 of our profession. You know, they're a few years away from retiring, whatever, right? And they're predominantly male and they're predominantly white. That is 75% of our profession is looking through one lens. So if we only see the fish in that tank, we are never going to see the context around that, 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 that fish. We're only going to see that. So we've physically, we are physically missing things. Yeah, we are. And so, you know, when we go, when, is this the reason why we've been at a plateau? in terms of our accident statistics our instant statistics is that we what's the saying you you can't carry on doing the same things and expect to get better results exactly so so you know we i mean if you look at the uk stats in terms of of this i mean the big drop came when we stopped mining and we stopped manufacturing and everything else but actually we've been at a plateau for such a long time. And so we're not going to solve that by continuing the way that we've always done everything. We've got to look at things through a different lens. We've got to look at the way that we speak to each other. We've got to look at our language. We've got to, we've got to disagree better. Yeah. And I think we need to really challenge what, to what you just talking about, like a language, like what, our norm is and i, and I think it's a shame we're, we're kind of coming to running out of time but um because i think when i mentioned this person and, and the work she's doing i think me and you could talk about her for a very long time but the work that chloe hughes is doing oh, around yeah. menstrual cycles and mm-hmm. menopause and i think that's going to be really uncomfortable for a lot of men to listen to and I've, I've chased her a very a few times to get her on this bloody podcast come and talk about it period <laughs> um, <laughs> see what i did there and um but you know i think that's really uncomfortable i you know for a long time it was uncomfortable for me to talk about and and now i've got a daughter now and and you know and i'm saying to my wife like we need to make it completely comfortable for her to talk about that thing that is 100 natural to her in front of me because I want to make yeah. sure that if it's anything ever wrong and you're not around, Sherry, she can come to me. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we and do that know, at work as well. Yeah. And, and you know something, this is where, you know, I am on the older side of that scale. <laughs> um, I find that really uncomfortable to talk mm. about, you know. Mm. And so if I, I think it's something that, you know, the younger generations are definitely much more comfortable in talking about this is I've definitely come from a generation where you just keep going whatever um and and lots of women are very very ill um for gynecological reasons you know they don't talk about it Mm. and they just 
carry on. Yeah, exactly. You know? And it's dangerous for them and for the company. You know, menopause can really change and put a woman through some crazy ass shit. And she's coming to work and running your machine. Like you, yeah. want, you want to have an environment where she can say to you, you know, I'm, I'm having hot flushes right now or my mm-hmm. vision's changing. You know, it can do some really crazy stuff. And because you're not making it comfortable as a company, not just a company, but as a society, we're not making it comfortable to talk about that stuff. It, you know, it's creating issues. All the most vulnerable things that we have in our lives, like finance, sex, politics, you know, our genitals and our, our menstrual cycles and menopause, they're all taboo to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, people get in so much trouble around finance, around sex and anything like that. But, but we as a society say, oh, I don't, we, don't, we don't talk about that stuff. We don't mm-hmm. talk, but like, that is the stuff we need to make okay to talk about. I am financially I, not okay I, or I, something I do like wonder, that. I do wonder why, you know, this has probably come from women feeling, if I open up about my femininity, I am going to be judged differently. I mean, I, I, it's in my professional um, career. Um, when I was um, an EH, I, I can't even remember. In, well, I would have been in my 20s, you know, when I was looking to move around and what my next steps might be, there would be adverts for um, people with my qualifications um, to work in the Middle East, and they would say no women. Wow. So... So, you know, that's that's in my professional life and those things are very ingrained. It creates a heuristic in your brain, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's um, I think we've got a long way to go, but I can see a lot of change coming. And I just I hope we keep these conversations going. And I think it's good. And I think the change is, is powerful. And I think work that people like Chloe are doing and what that you've done over the years and are still doing. Um, and, and I'm just people. putting it out there. <laughs> I think it's good. I think it's good. And I think that we, we just need to keep putting it out there. And, and yeah. I think as well, we need to put, well, this is just my opinion, but I, I think my aim with this, this little mini series is to put it across in a, not in an aggressive way, like not in mm. a, well, you're a white man and you're everything that's wrong with the world. That's not my intent here. My, yeah. my, my intent is to acknowledge that there's more white men doing a lot of stuff and that there's a benefit to having less white men do it and, and mix it up a bit. Um, you, know, you know, a great phrase that somebody gave me is, and, and this is kind of what holds us back a little bit as well, is that, and, and, you know, I've described how it gets worse the higher up the ladder that you go, is that um, somebody um, close to me was, was listening to a podcast. I can't even remember who did it. Otherwise, I'd acknowledge them. Um, but she actually came up. She, she said it's not about the fact that, you know, women are out to, you know, take your piece of the pie yeah. because we just need to make more pies. You yeah, know? Exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. I heard that so, before as well. Yeah. So and, it's it's just not, I just think we need to create space for everybody. And and frankly, there's already enough pies. There's already <laughs> enough pies. 100%. There is enough pies. We just need to, we just need to be a little bit more inclusive in the way, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, but no, I, I've heard that before as well. And I think it's good. Yeah. And it's not like we need less of this, this, ethnicity or less of this gender it's that 
we're not just going to put those, I'm not saying, well, put you out of the job. It's just, mm-hmm. we just need to mix things up a bit. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that when, when we have these conversations, it's so aggressive and it's so like targeted at, at, at people that the people that need to hear it switch off because they feel like they're being mm-hmm. attacked. And I don't mm-hmm. want to see that in our profession because we desperately need um, to do We better. need good people. Yeah, definitely. Right, Louise, we are, I'm going to tie that up because I can smell my dinner from downstairs <laughs> and I'm going to go sit with my daughter for a little bit. And um, so would you like to just give a little shout out to your company uh, if anyone w- likes what you're talking about and they want to do something? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd say a first shout out is to anybody who's interested in One Wish, that's um, women and in inclusion in safety and health. Um, and we've got a LinkedIn page. So do have a look at that. I'd say just follow me on LinkedIn um, because I'm talking about this um, more and more. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if anybody wants to get in contact with me, I, I love chattering on LinkedIn. So that's probably the best way to make contact. Great stuff. We'll put the thank details. Thank you so much for having me, James. It's always great talking to you. No, thank you very much for coming on. It was a good chat. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Louise. I thoroughly enjoyed it because I enjoy all of my chats because I like talking to people. Um, so I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Louise, for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to hear about your career, your challenges, and just have a general chit chat about diversity. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance and the Learning Organization webinar that they run email address, phone number, website in the description below. So don't forget to check that. Um, If you are a safety professional and you're looking to join a mastermind community, you're looking to shoot your professional development up the wazoo, then Project Miletium is a place for you. Um, So please go check out that website in the description below. And if you're looking for any more help with safety, with risk management, anything like that, go and check out rebrandingsafety.com. We do loads of services. You're looking for a bit of a different keynote for your internal motivational workshop thingamajiggy, or maybe you're looking for something for your event. Maybe you're looking to promote your brand and we we offer media services as well. So please go and check out our website, look at all the services that we provide and uh, I'm sure we can help each other out. And we would just love to work with members of our audience anyway, because it's just great fun. Um, so thank you very much for listening thank you very much for thinking about us if you do need any work thank you very much for checking out Paradigm and Project Melitum and ultimately thanks for being a listener I'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilized in real life as the only solution available assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies no part of this podcast may be reproduced stored or transmitted in any form or by any means mechanical electronic or otherwise without prior written permission from james mcpherson Thank <laughs> you.